Good morning. Or I would like to say bonjour to a very special friend who is here from, um, she lives in Chad, was from Chad, and so she doesn't speak English, so I wanted to at least say my few words of bonjour, je t'aime, bisous, bisous, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so, so grateful that all of you are here this morning, and I really do find it truly a privilege to stand here this morning and open the scriptures and believe that the Holy Spirit would meet us here this morning. Um, Ian, when he asked me, you know that um, Ian is doing a series on faith, and he asked me in his absence to do a sermon on faith in waiting, and I was like, whew, I'm not very good at waiting. (laughs) And then I thought, I bet they're not very good at waiting either. Like, <laughs> particularly if you grew up in uh, the American culture, you're probably not very good at waiting. And I thought of some anecdotal things, simple things in my life that are indicative, indicative that I am not good at waiting. You can tell me if you, re- you can think, do I relate to that? One is driving on Route 1. So when I drive on Route 1, I calculate very carefully as I'm coming up to a red light how many cars are in what lane, what type of cars are in what lane, because if it's a bus or a truck, uh uh-uh. I also calculate whether or not there's an incline after the red light to see how long it would take the trucks to ramp up to go forward, and then I choose the lane that I'm in, and then I see if I made a good choice to see if I beat the car in the lane next to me. Yeah, I know. It's like I create this spreadsheet in my mind, and I'm not even into spreadsheets about what the lane is best because I don't really like to wait. Because And the, the grocery store line is a very similar process, as you can imagine, to see who's in what line, how many groceries they have in the line, and whether or not the cashier is in training, because there's a lot of people at ShopRite in training. I read this week that in Denmark, they have purposely opened slow lines because there's a there's loneliness, particularly among the elderly. And they thought if in grocery stores we open up slow lines, then people can chat with that cashier. And I thought, oh, that's both tragic because of the need for it and beautiful because they care. And thirdly, I would never choose that line. (laughs) Or I think too about um, if Amazon Prime, it doesn't deliver the next day because of my poor planning. I'm like, oh, come on, what is the problem with this? So these these are little things in life that indicate that it's really hard to slow down and just enjoy the process of life and even allow what's internally in us to surface. Those are simple examples, but as we know, well, I would say there are two different kinds of waiting probably. One is we can wait with expectancy, like a child waits for Christmas, or you wait for your wedding day, or I wait to get to sit on my couch tonight and lean against my husband and watch the AFC championship. There's an expectancy that comes with waiting for things that we look forward to. And yet, if we're honest, it's that liminal space of waiting in those things that create the deep pain for us, where there's anxiety, where there's a sense of, Lord, how long, where there's anger, where there's this sense of, Lord, do you see me? I think of legitimate desires that we have. I desire to be married for so long, and I feel like God is just kind of dangling this carrot in front of me because I think he gave me that desire. And again and again and again, I found myself disappointed. I think it's very similar to a desire to birth a child. I still grieve that I've never born a child out of my womb and that there are those that are waiting 
for God to, to give you the desire of your heart of a baby. And you're like, Jesus, you birthed this in me. It's a good desire. When are you going to move? And then I think about the waiting that comes with oppression, the collective cry of, I think of my friends from Iran where their regime is so oppressive. And I cry, how long, how long, how long, God, will people publicly execute people? Or we grieve this weekend with our, the African-American community at the brutal death of Tyree Nichols. And we say, Lord, we wait. How long, how long, how long will we have systems that are unjust? And then there are things like, Lord, I have applied for this job. I think the interview went okay. And I'm waiting and waiting and waiting. What's going to happen? Will you provide a job for me? Lord, I don't know what I'm going to do. And then there's waiting where you feel like, this season of that, that historians call it the dark night of the soul. Well, perhaps you feel like I am the brunt of some kind of injustice where I feel misunderstood, where I'm not seen, and it seems like forever for God to move. Or will he ever move? Is there light at the end of the tunnel? Because we live in a fallen world and we live in the bold narrative of scripture where God is working and moving, but the story is not over yet. Every person is in a liminal space of waiting in some way. And I'm really, really grateful that Jesus addresses that, that he gives us an invitation to wait with him, that waiting is not without purpose, that he invites us into intimacy, that he wants to bring deep hope into those places of our soul where we're waiting on him. And this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 131. And it's a hopeful invitation from the Lord, I believe. And um, uh, I would like to pray because I'm nervous, and I have that, you know, how you get nervous, and you want to pray, so I'm going to. But as I pray, I want you also to come before the Lord and be as honest as you can. What are you waiting on? Where is there anxiety? Where do you feel mad because God isn't doing what you want him to do when you want him to do it? So let's pray. God, you know our hearts, and our hearts are vulnerable. And um, everything within us, God wants us to pull back and not be honest. And... um, And yet we invite you, God, um, to meet each person here, that you'd meet me, that you'd use your scripture, God, to nourish us, to provide hope, to reveal who you are to us. I ask Jesus Christ for your blood and your righteousness over us in this place, that you'd push back the darkness in every way, God, that you'd expose the lies of the evil one, and that you would meet us, God, in our tender places as we wait with you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. This morning, we're going to look at Psalm 131. And Psalm 131 is in the context of Scripture where there's a group of psalms from 120 to 134 that are called the Psalm of Ascents. And that three times a year, the people of God, the people of Israel, would make a journey to Jerusalem for a festival to worship. And this trek, particularly those for, lived in the, for those who lived in the north in Galilee, it was a four to five day process. And they'd come down the Jordan River. And then the last day of the journey was about a 3,400 feet climb. It was about a 15 mile climb into Jerusalem. 
and that they, they would repeat these psalms both individually and corporately because they needed strength. They needed hope. They were in the middle of a journey where they said, God, we're going to worship you, but we're not there yet. We're suspended in this journey, and we need you to help us. And Psalm 131 gives us some um, places, I think, of how to wait well with God. Charles Spurgeon says about this psalm that it's one of the shortest psalms to read, but it's one of the longest to learn. And I find that's true for me, that often when I'm anxious, he will bring this psalm to mind for many, many years, and I have a long way to go to really learn it. But we're going to look at it together this morning. We'll see that as we wait, that we can cultivate humility, that we can embrace simplicity, that we need to still our soul, and that we can hope in him. Psalm 131 says, My heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. My heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not haughty. That um, the psalmist says, I stand before you, God, and I'm not proud as it relates to you. I stand before you, God, and I am not haughty as it relates to how I look at others. I don't know about you, but I'm like, ooh, that's a pretty bold statement. I don't think I can say it. And um, I... I God brought to mind very quickly that I'm so grateful that we actually have a very humble God. And because we have a humble God, he took on flesh. And it says in Philippians 2 that being in the very nature of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. In humility, God condescended in a way that he exchanged my arrogance for his humility. And it is our hope as we talk about cultivating humility today that God in the flesh in Jesus says, I'm going to give you the capacity to cultivate humility. I am a God that understands humility. I spoke the world into existence and I was pushed through the birth canal of a teenage little girl. And I took the, the incredible uh, rude and petty and judgmental, uh, just the, I can't imagine what it was look like, like on the cross when he's God and people are spitting on him. I can't even imagine. But that is our hope today as we talk about cultivating humility that before him and our new nature, we can say, God, my heart's not proud. My eyes aren't haughty. And that um, he, he gives us his humility. He also says that there's a proactive choice on our part, that he says, clothe yourself with humility. He said, humble yourself before God. Cast your anxieties on me because I care for you. And if we don't choose humility to cultivate humility, it says at the end of Daniel 4 about Nebuchadnezzar, which is a wild passage. He says, those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. And to me, that gives me hope. You know why? Because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And I'm like, I don't really want the opposition of God. 
God, would you help me choose? Would you help me choose to humble myself before you? Because the propensity of my natural heart and yours too is that of arrogance. Because I want to shake my fist at God and say, God, I want you to do it the way I want you to do it when I want you to do it. And God says, humble yourself before me. So here, there are many, many ways that we can cultivate humility. Here's some thoughts that I had. One, I decided to put God in the center because we tend to humble ourselves when we aren't in the center and God is in the center. So the first one is, is to keep our nose in scripture. And I don't mean like to check off some list because now I feel good about myself. That can actually fuel arrogance to go, look at me, I've read through the Bible. Instead to say, God, this is your authoritative word that you in your kindness has given to us and you reveal who you are. And as you reveal who you are, we cannot but bow before him in humility. I think of verses like where God comes to Job and he says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Have you ever given order to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Job's like, I will stand silent before you. Or in Isaiah 40, it says, Who has measured the water in the hollow of his hands? The waters of the world, the oceans. If you stand by the ocean and you think God measures the water in the hollow of his hands, or with the breath of his hand, mark off the heavens. There was a time in my life where I flew a lot. And flying actually is very humbling when you realize the masses in the world and you're like one little speck. And I would put my hand against the window of the airplane. And I think with the hand, God's hand, he marks off the heavens. And it goes on to say, whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Or in Romans 11, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. I need to choose to cultivate humility and say, as I'm waiting, God, you are God and I am not. And I want to be God. It's good to be that honest. I want to be God because you aren't doing what I want you to do when I want you to do it. But as we're in this scriptures, God reveals who he is and that his grandeur is actually given to us to set us free, that he's far bigger and wiser and kinder than we could ever know. And he reveals that through his scripture. My friend Sarah graduated from Princeton in 2011, and um, I got to know her when I worked in New York City with 20-somethings in the city. And she wrote a blog post for us about her journey in understanding the role of scripture in her life. And she talked about when she was a sophomore or junior as a student at Princeton, um, her discipler gave her this year-long Bible, read the Bible in a year. And she was like, I was going to pat myself on the back and go, I'm going to read the Bible in a year. And she delightfully wrote this blog post about how it took her several years to get through the scriptures. But this was her experience I wanted to share with you. I continued plowing forward with that neon green piece of paper at my own pace, which had the little checkoffs for the daily readings, having seen that the one-year mark come and go more than a few times. Through it all, I learned that my God of kindness and gentleness represented merely one tiny component of the God of the Bible. 
the God of the Bible was and is more fiercely loyal, more indisputably just, more awesomely powerful, and more unimaginably loving than I could ever than I ever truly comprehended, nor will I ever fully understand. During my years of lackluster, essentially non-existent scripture reading habits, I had created a God who was pleasant and safe, but I had missed out on knowing and walking with the great true God. As such, I had a God who would maybe give me a little boost on a test for which I had studied for hours, but I didn't call upon a God who ruled the heavens and earth and everything in them to address what I could not. I didn't really know that God. But as I learned, as I made my way through his words to us, every line of the Bible shouts from the rooftops that God is and does the latter, not the former. Every day when I read on the subway, God's word has a way of reorienting my life. So we choose to cultivate humility by keeping our nose in scripture. We can choose to cultivate humility by taking time and creating space to go look at creation. I mean, God is an amazing creator. He spoke the world into existence. He has all power in heaven and earth, and creation is awesome. If you've seen any of the pictures from the Webb telescope, and think about the fact that God determines the numbers of stars and cause them each by name, it has a way of humbling us. Or you think about the fact that in our bodies, we have over 60,000 miles of veins 60,000 miles, and that your fingerprint is unlike anybody else's that ever has lived or ever will live in all of history. Amazing that God is our creator. Or confession, God's grace and confession. I pray often for me and those that I love that God, Jesus will take me deep into his sufficiency and deep into his affection so that I can handle his light. Because otherwise, his light is like, whoa. But when he shines the light on our need for him and we understand Jesus' incredible sufficiency and completion of what he did on the cross, we can go, Jesus, please shine your light, shine it boldly, and help me not walk in shame or self-contempt, but to turn my face toward you that I might be humbled to say, God, you love me and forgive me. You call me your own. I turn back, I turn back, I turn back. That a life in the light has confession multiple times a day, and we need to welcome that. I want to welcome that. Or God's provision, gratitude, that nothing we have, have has not been given to us. That everything we have has been given to us in some way or another. And that cultivating thankfulness day in and day out humbles us before God. And then God's people, that my eyes are not haughty, that I don't know about you, but I compare uh, very quickly all the time. And it's not inherently bad, I don't think. It's what we do with the comparison that's a problem. And when I think, ooh, I'm better than them or I'm worse than them, it's a problem and we can repent from it. So when tempted to compete, we need to cheer for one another. We need to seek to understand one another's world. I just read that Marie Kondo, who is like, does this give you joy? The decluttering expert said that she's, um, what was the word? I've kind of given up on keeping my house clean because she had three children. Isn't that hilarious? Like, she can compare and go, ooh, what is your problem? Look how clean my house is. And then she, her circumstances changed, and she realized, oh, this isn't as easy. So when we compare ourselves to others, it is 
Not, it's a non sequitur. We don't understand their story or their life. And that humanity needs us to cheer for them, not compete with them. So cultivate humility. And then as we cultivate humility and say, God, you are God and I am not. And in that is great freedom that we can embrace simplicity. By this I mean I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, things far beyond me. Certainly who God is is far beyond me. But there are so many things that are not in my realm of control or comprehension and that God's like, let it go. Let it go. Choose simplicity in life. Here's some things that are too wonderful for me, I think. The mystery of God. As we wait, there will be confusion. As we wait, particularly in the dark night of the soul, where you're like, God, where are you? And you are not moving. There is a mystery of God that we cannot figure out. There's some theology that does not line up to me. Like sometimes with God, A plus B equals 287. I mean, it just is a non, it does not add up. And God says there's, there's a time where the infinite meets the finite. There's a time when God says, I can be known truly, and we need to say, God, I want to know you. Reveal yourself to me. Reveal yourself to me. I'm desperate to know you. But there's a moment where he's like, you will never grasp me. You will never grasp me. I had a church history professor once named Dr. Hannah, and I think he had like seven PhDs. He was a very brilliant man. His delivery was very poor. He had a very flat affect. He would stand at his podium like this and very rarely would look up like that. But he was godly. And people would pepper him with questions, and he'd go, I don't really know for sure. Seven PhDs, many in theology. He'd go, I don't really know for sure. And it wasn't because he wasn't studied. He goes, this is a perspective, this is a perspective, this is a perspective, this is a perspective. I lean toward this way, and this is why. But in the end, I bow in worship. And that his life was very, very indicative that he lived before God in worship because he says, God, I will never fully understand who you are. And he was studied. I'm not saying don't study who's, who God is in theology. Um, one other thing that beyond our control is, or is too wonderful for us is perfection. Men and women, carry. This is what's true. We're not loved because we could get it together. We're not. We're loved because God is a God of love and that he invites us to love one another and that I cannot fix myself and I cannot fix the world. You cannot fix yourself in the world. And the sooner we realize that, the more we can release that. We pursue excellence to the glory of God, but perfectionism is an insidious lie and it is beyond us. We are not perfect. We weren't designed to be perfect. Only God is perfect. Things too wonderful for me are the false self that I want to be different than I am. Comes with comparison a little bit, for sure. Like, I'm around brilliant people all the time, and I'm not that brilliant. Like, this week, in a very humble way, one of my friends, to, to illustrate a point, she said, in her country, they give a test um, to enter the university, and there are 400,000 students that took the test. She ranked 217th of 400,000, and I was like, oh, my God. Gosh. And so I can't compete. I can't compete intellectually with the people I'm, I'm, I'm working with, but I can believe Jesus to love them as I'm my true self. So trying to be someone you're not, or even wishing that you were like your neighbor, to go, Jesus, would you free me of that? Um, the opinion of others. 
We, um, it's too, too wonderful for us. I was on staff with Crew at Ohio State, and our team imploded. Like, it was bad. Conflict. They fired the guy I worked with. There was a rumor in our region that it was my fault. I felt so misunderstood. I really, really, really care about the opinion of others, and I think it's my right to be understood. I really do. Jesus was the most misunderstood person in all of history, and he didn't demand to be understood. But um, my friend Maureen and I would go out for coffee every week, and um, I would process this situation, and she'd go, Carrie, people's opinion of you is none of your business. And I was like, ooh, that's good. And so I have carried that with me for years. Um, The past and the future um, are too wonderful for us. I cannot change my choices in the past. I can reflect on them in the power of the Holy Spirit and lament and learn from them, but a a gross introspection of them and a desire to control is a broken cistern that will never lead to life. It's too wonderful for us. What's also true is that the future, I don't know what's going to happen in 10 minutes. I mean, we don't know what's going to happen. And to try to anticipate it, to control it, it's one thing to have vision and direction. It's another thing to say, this is what I want you to do, and to dream about it um, is a broken cistern. And then anything outside of your circle of control, you can put this up. You've probably seen this, but this is so helpful for me to remember that I am not a victim and that I want the center circle to grow. And I would also, so my own actions, my own thoughts, my words, um, my what does that say, mindset, my work ethic, things that I can own. I would also say how I walk with God, how I treat others, even those that don't treat me well. And then there's a circle of influence. Certainly we want to be involved in bringing influence in the world to fight for justice, to vote, to love our neighbors. But there are things outside of our control that if I could minimize, it's too wonderful for me. Traffic, um, the government's choices, the economy, the football scorer, sometimes I have to release that. So the truth is, is that anything outside of our circle of control is too wonderful for us, and that God invites us to live present with him in the things that I can own as I wait on him. So um, he invites us to cultivate humility, to embrace simplicity, and then he says, but I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. So still your soul. The first thing you need to do is to realize where your soul isn't still. Like sometimes I'd look at this and go, be still, Carrie, be still. And the anxiety and the angst, you know, it's like, but um, there's a book called Try Softer by Andy Kobler. And she talks about how our instincts are to flight, to fight, to fawn, which means to try to accommodate to make things better. I'm a fawner or a freeze. Um, and that, that to be aware of your propensity, what you, tr- what you do in order to cope. And instead of choosing those coping patterns to actually sit with the discomfort, to learn how to go, God, I am so sad. I am so frustrated. I feel like you don't even see me or know. Because what lament does is it moves our heart in a direction toward God, that it opens our heart up to him. And when we're waiting, it is hard to still and quiet our soul. So as we pay attention, we can come before him, and part of quieting our soul is to take deep breaths 
to be present, to be honest about what's going on in our body and our emotions, and then direct it toward God. And so as we still her soul, he says, come to me like a weaned child, like a weaned child with its mother is my soul within me. This is not an easy teaching because the weaning of a child, I've never done it, but it seems like it can be kind of intense that the baby comes to the mother in a very demanding way and that the mother knows for the good of the child that this would not be good if this child is going to first grade and still nursing. Like, it's not a good idea. So the weaning process is one where the child is demanding and the mother is putting up boundaries. And it's not an easy time for the child or the mother. So I understand. But God says, I want you to come to me as a weaned child because I want you to come not based on a demanding spirit to get from me, but I want you to come based on the reality that I have proven to you again and again. I am good, and what I do is good, and I delight to do you good, and that, that I am such that as you belong to me as, as a child, I cannot not do you good. Taste and see my goodness. Come to me in light of what you know is true of my character. Again, still your soul, be honest, lament. I'm not saying it's easy. I remember a weaning process. I think we go through cycles of weaning processes. I, there was a period in 2017, 2018, 2019 in our family where there was compound grief. My niece passed away. My mom passed away. Bob's mom passed away. My sister passed away. I'm not saying this. My, my nephew was a, a, a pathological liar. I mean, just compound grief. And I would pray, 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 particularly for my niece who had a two-year-old and a four-year-old love her. And I remember sitting on my bed, it was very distinct, and I was like, I was, I was just mad. I was both mad and numb. I mean, I was like, and I just remember saying, God, and this is when it turned to lament, God, you are not doing anything I want you to do when I want you to do it. And he was like, in his, my spirit, do you remember that prayer you prayed several years ago that I would take your family deep with me and that I'd strip your family of self-righteous moralism? I don't think cancer is of God, by the way. I'm not saying that he did those things. I'm saying he's a redeemer and he is good and that we can trust him with our lament. It says this, there's a couple authors that I think have good insight on what it means to be a weaned child with God. It says, by Weiser says, his soul rests on God's heart and finds its happiness and intimate communion with him. Not like an infant crying loudly for his mother's breast, but like a weaned child that quietly rests by his mother's side, happy in being with her. Here his heart has found rest. He knows himself to be safe with God and to be sheltered in the love of his heavenly father. No desire now comes between him and his God, for he is sure that God knows what he needs before he asks them. And just as the child gradually breaks off the habit of regarding his mother only as a means of satisfying his own desires and learns to love her for her own sake. So the worshiper, after a struggle, has reached an attitude of mind in which he desires God for himself and not a means of fulfillment of his own, desire, his own wishes. His life center of gravity has shifted. He now rests no longer in himself, but in God. And in his great book, um, Along Obedience in the Same Direction, Eugene Peterson says, Christian faith is not neurotic dependency, but childlike trust. We do not have a God who forever indulges our whims, but a God whom we trust with our destinies. 
The Christian is not a naive, innocent infant who has no identity apart from a feeling of being comforted and protected and catered to, but a person who has discovered an identity given by God, which can be enjoyed best and fully in a voluntary trust in God. We do not cling to God desperately out of fear and the panic of insecurity. We come to him freely in faith and in love. That as we learn how to cultivate humility, as you're waiting on God, to say, God, you are God and I am not. You don't have to like it. You don't have to like it. But he is God and we are not. And as we cultivate simplicity or we embrace simplicity to say, God, I come before you and I own what I can own before you. And as we still our soul, as we will lament, as we're honest, and we come to him based on what he has revealed about his character, that he can be trusted. That in that, even in the reality that we will die waiting for many things, and that the story is not over, that one day we will have every deep desire met in our life, and he will wash every tear from our eyes. And I believe in this this space and time, he also gives us the grace to hope in him. Um, that, That it says, oh, Israel, hope in the Lord both now and forever. I want to go back. So I think it's important to realize that when we come to God as a weaned child, we also have an impact on God's emotions, that he cares about that. So I'd like for those of you who are parents, what does it feel like when a four-year-old, a weaned child comes and finds comfort from you? What emotions does that evoke in you? It's not a rhetorical question. Nothing? So when a, when, a, when a weaned child comes to you for comfort because he or she trusts you, how does that feel? It feels awesome. Homecoming. What else? Satisfying. Yes. It's like, and for those of you with adult children, like some things I think it would be grievous to have adult children make choices. How does it feel when adult children come and seek your advice? Very satisfying. (laughs) Yeah, very satisfying. Yeah. And so I think it's important that God, God, we are in relationship with God and we impact his heart and that it is to his great delight that we say, God, I don't understand. You are God and I am not. God, I'm going to own that all I can do is fling myself to you. I was talking to a friend the other day whose child has a mental illness. And she's like, it's crazy. Like, I don't know what to do. And she, I, she goes, I find that either I, I numb myself and I run or I fling myself on God. And I think about the, the disciples when Jesus gave a hard teaching and many left. And Jesus turned to them and said, you know, are you going to go too? And the the disciple says, you have the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? That is a maturing believer that comes to God and says, God, you are for me and not against me. I believe that you're good, and I pour out my heart and lament to you as I wait with you. And as we do that, he shapes our character, and he makes us people of hope because the story is not over. Let's see what time it is.
I was going to tell a last story, but I won't. Um, Savannah is in a waiting process. She just um, filled out, arduously filled out how many applications? Nine for PhD programs in philosophy. So I just asked her this week, how do you wait with Jesus? Like, what are you learning? And I thought what she said actually really, really reflects Psalm 131. She says, um, everything, I think with every season of formation, there is a corresponding temptation that arises. As I sit in the waiting, it feels like there are two main ways of coping, pushing myself into the discomfort, and that waiting brings up Oh, pushing myself, sorry, Savannah, I'm not do, do, saying your words very well. Pushing into the discomfort that the waiting brings up or trying to distract myself. Realizing that my disposition leans toward distraction, I'm learning how to create space to lean into what the spirit is doing. As I push into the anxiety and fear that I feel as I anticipate a future that I have no control over, I am learning to pray and abide in Christ's faithfulness in a capacity that other seasons have not required. I return often to Psalm 13, in which David exclaims, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? Yet, yet he finishes this psalm professing, But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Like David, I am learning to come before the Lord in the season of waiting and present my vulnerabilities and emotions while learning to rest in the peace that I can eternally trust in God's unfailing love, for he has been good to me. So what about you? I don't mean to be simplistic, by the way because I think there are some of you on a journey where the waiting is excruciating, um, and that this psalm is an easy one to read and a long time to live out. And Jesus, nor, nor is Jesus flippant with your grief and your heart and your waiting, and he invites you. So um, I would love to pray for you, and then as we um, share communion together, as we come to the table together, um, others will be up here for prayer if you would like prayer, that God would meet you in that waiting, you're welcome to do that. So let me pray. God, I, sometimes I feel like, Lord, words are so hollow that the waiting can be so excruciating that it can feel flippant and that it actually makes me more angry when people say the things I've said this morning. And I pray, Holy Spirit, for each person here, wherever they are in the process of where they're waiting, we invite you to be God. We worship you as God. We bow before you as God. We invite you to teach us, God, how to, to learn, God, to release to you the things that we cannot control. And we come to you, God, and still our soul as we lament and are honest and we declare that you are worthy of our trust, God. Give us hope, God. Hope is an anchor for our soul, Jesus. Only you can do these things, Holy Spirit, in a supernatural way by your work. And we invite the release of your power, God, to work in this way. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.